I think we all like to be around certain kinds of people. Uh, creative people are people I like to be around. I like to catch their creativity. Uh, it's fun to dream outside and think outside the box. And creative people do that. They're, sometimes they're creative problem solvers. You might have one on your team where they're constantly the person who can see the possibilities on the other side of the problem. You need those people on your team. Uh, they're, they're good to have around. I like creative people, and we have a number of creative people in our church. In our last gathering, we actually had somebody in it that was a part of bringing the barcode system that we scan everything in now uh, at every grocery store you go to, uh, bringing the barcode system into reality, into, uh, into Walmart and so forth. And so you think about that level of creativity and the rippling effect around the world, and it's, that's just fun. Even if I don't understand the barcode uh, and understand how those little lines mean this many dollars and how it all spits out. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy in our church, a young man in our church that dev- has developed a paint that goes on and adheres to solar panels that adheres to so quickly and it's non-toxic in the way it, it's, it's a, he tried to explain it to me and I did not understand it. So I'm telling you in the, the, the McDaniel version, it's just really cool. Okay. And, and how he created this and to know that I've, I, I've touched the hand of the man who dry, dries paint really fast uh, and figured that out, you know. So, you know, there's creative people like that. We have artists in our church and how they can take a blank canvas and create something that pops or photographers in our church. I look at what, what we've got out in our gallery right now going on and I will look at the creativity with an iPhone. My photos never look like that. And so I, I see the creativity and it energizes me. And I think one of the things it does is it takes me back. Creativity takes us back to our most basic and purest created form. Whenever you think about creativity, you can get no more creative than God. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. God in creation and creativity is right there. And then, top it all off, he turns around and gives us his image in verse 26. And he says, and let's make man in our likeness and let's create him in our image, uh, in our, excuse me, let's create, uh, make man in our image after our likeness. Now, there's a lot of theological debate about what this is the likeness and what is the image and have we lost that and what's lost of it and, and, and because of the fall of man and over the, over, the, over the seasons of life and periods of time and, and what did God restore. I, I, I can't parse that all out today and certainly couldn't do it even if I had a month to do it. But I can say this. When we are back into its most purest form, we are back in touch with our creator God, with the image that he created. And by the way, I love this idea of God being the creator God. That word created there is the Hebrew word bara, which interesting to note, God is the only subject, the only noun ever associated with that Hebrew word bara. Now, why do I keep saying Hebrew? Hebrew is what the Old Testament was largely written in. And it's the only noun associated, connected to that one Hebrew word, bara. And why is that? Why is that so significant? Because this, the word bara means to create something out of absolutely nothing. 
And God is the only person who has ever, the only entity who has ever been able to create absolutely everything that we're seeing out of absolutely nothing. And you can't even say thin air. Because thin air in itself is oxygen, and oxygen is a, is a part of the periodical table. It's a part of life. It's a part of existence. It's out there. So even when there wasn't oxygen, when there was nothing, God made something. That's how fast our God is. That's how incredible our God is. That's how creative our God is. I love studying creativity. I love bringing back creative thought and idea. In fact, we even are having a kids camp here in a few weeks uh, called Story, uh, our Story Camp, where we literally invite children from, I think, sixth grade, there it is, uh, age of six to 15, where they are going to come. And we're just going to try to get them in touch again with their creative nature that God has put inside of them. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because most people will say this, I'm not creative. I'm not, because I would say I'm not creative. But whenever I am getting back to the nature that God has created, I got to realize I am creative. I can be creative. But at the same time, I can never be bara creative. Something out of nothing. All I do is rearrange the particles. All I can do is rearrange atoms. All I can do is rearrange shapes and designs. And that's what we call creativity today. Because in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9, it says there's nothing new under the sun. So there's nothing new out there. All we're doing is rearranging what God has already put into order. So let's not mess up what God has put in order. Okay, let's not mess up because he was very creative about putting things in place. And so there's certain things in life that we really ought not mess with. One of those things is the family. The very first institution that he established was a marriage, husband and wife coming together, cleaving, leaving father and mother and becoming one flesh together forever. That's the beauty. When we mess with it, it messes it up. Okay, we don't need to mess up what God has put in place. There's other things that God has put in place. But I want to talk about today is one very important thing that I think that God put in order and he put in order for our good and for the good of humanity. And that is, listen very carefully, here it is, the church. I know it wasn't what you were thinking. It's not this building, okay? It's not this building. I'm not talking about this building. I am talking about the church of which God had put in order, which he brought people together. He called them out in a very individual, unique, beautiful calling. And he brings us together and he puts us together in this community. We say this around here from time to time. The best way to bless a community is to start a church because it's the only organization that will bless a community, body, soul, and spirit. That's why I'm saying that what God did in his creative planning of the universe and whenever he put Jesus on the earth is, was to start this movement called the church. And there's certain things about the church. So I think it's God's creative way of saying, I love you. How he's going to creatively say, I love you. And this is it's going to make sense in the end. So just bear with me right now. The way he says, I love you in the church is it, he gives us elements in the church. When the church is acting as the church should act, it is a place of security. It is a place where you can find security. We're going to use words like foundation. We just sang about foundation. We're going to sing another song about foundation. We were sing about cornerstone. We're going to, all this, what's all this about? Because there's a lot of things in this world and in this society that's shifting, right? 
There's a lot of things in this world that we don't know if we have a job tomorrow or we're going to have a job next month. We don't know if the relationship's going to make it till the end of this year. We don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know. But one of the things we can rest assured in is that the foundation, the security of the church is a reality. And it's not going to be based on my, my words. It's going to be based on Jesus's words when he founded the church. We'll come there in a moment. But another word you need to hang on to when you think about the church, when you think about what God's love is in giving us the church, is strength. He gives us strength through the church. He's going to use a phrase in here where he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Okay, we're going to be in Matthew 16. If you're not there, you can be find it. We'll be there in a moment. But here's the point. He's going to talk about we're, the, the hell will not be able to stop the church. There is a strength, a supernatural strength, in the church that is not in the world. There's a supernatural strength that you can, uh, that, that, is, that, is, that is a reality in the community of the church that can totally revolutionize your life and our community. All right? But there's also beauty in the church. Now, I would not have chose this phrase, but this is what God did. He chose it in Revelation. He chose it in John. He chose it in other places of the scriptures. It's used about, I don't know, maybe 15 different times where he talks about Jesus being the bridegroom and he's coming for his bride and he calls us his bride. There's beauty in that, okay? Now, I, I, I've done two weddings in the past, I guess, month now. Uh, uh, and again, it's, it's always incredibly emotional, even for me, uh, when I see the bride coming down. When I see the groom watching the bride come down, I'm like, I'm getting front row seats to these two people madly in love with one another, falling in love with another, and I get to see it up close and, and personal. And you know what? One of the things I've learned about, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 weddings that I've done in the course of my life uh, or performed the ceremony is, is, is this, is that I've never seen an ugly bride. Okay? I've never seen. Now, I've seen some brides that had to work harder to get pretty than others, but I've never seen an ugly one. Uh, because, I mean, on that day, they just look good. They look really good on that day. And so, when you think about when God looks through the lenses of heaven and he looks down on earth, and he looks at this imperfect body of people, not the building. Forget the building. It's not the building. The building can come and go, and the church would remain. It's not the denomination. The denominations come and go all the time. Church, they come and go all the time. No, it's the people. It's, it's, it's the belief. It's, it's the foundation. It's everything that defines a church. That is what God calls his bride. And he's coming for it. And when you get to Revelation chapter 18 and you get to one of the last scenes before the Bible closes, but the, one of the first scenes that we're going to see in heaven is this beautiful banquet feast and the bride and the bridegroom will be together and it will be a beautiful time. So the church is full of beauty. Marred as it may be, it's still full of beauty. The other thing the church is, and it's one of the way God says I love the world, is the influence of the church. He uses words like salt and light. He gives us things like a great commission to the nations. Tells us to go and to, uh, to be love and to share love. And, and listen, you know, in this world of, it seems like the hate meter is growing exponentially. Okay? Whether you're talking about 
political leaders and their rhetoric, or you're talking about parties, or you're what I'm gonna say this. Love is greater than hate any day of the week. And if I can think of any body entity institution out there that is built on, that grows through, that reproduces love any more than the church, I cannot. The church is the institution, is the body, is the, is the, is the representation of Christ that in the world, of God in the world, to bring and to be love and to give it. And so we need to realize that we have a unique place in this whole grand scheme of things. Bill Heibel said it like this, the church is the hope of the world. Not the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party, not new laws and constitutions and new judges. Or, or, no, I want to say this, whether you're a communist nation, whether you're, whether you're a democratic nation, whether, whether you're a developed country or a developing country, the hope of the world is the church. And we've said it around here before many, many times that if you want to bless a community, you start, you start a church because it's the only organization that will bless a community, body, soul, and spirit. Now, here's the reality about America today. Only about 17% of Americans will attend a church today. They'll be a part of a group of people today, whether they're meeting in a home, they're meeting in a conference room, they're meeting in a church facility, they're meeting in a high school, wherever they may be meeting. I don't care where they're assembling. They could be assembling under a tree in Africa. Only, well, I guess Africa would not be America, excuse me. Uh, 17% of Americans attend church on any given Sunday. And when you think about that number, and you think about the depreciation of the value in people's minds of the church, I want to take you back 16 years ago when Lori, and I don't know if there are any of the other people who are in the room right now. We had some in the first gathering. The founding members met in a living room on 103 Nita Road in Rogers and I shared the message that I'm going to share with you today. That nearly every year since then, I've shared this same message about this same time. And it may not be good for you, but it's certainly good for me. It's good for me to come back and to say, Mike, are we still about what we said we were going to be about on day one? Are we still believing what we said we were believing as we were believing on day one? Or have we changed? Because I'm still a big proponent to say that I believe, as Heibel said, that the hope of the world rests inside the church. It's not just us. It's not our institutions. It's not our meeting halls. It's what we have and what we offer and what we bring. And I'll unpack this in just a moment. But I think Eugene Peterson, who paraphrased the Bible and what we call the message, uh, he said it like this. He said, our membership in the church is a, is a corollary to our faith in Christ. I'm going to read that to you again. Our membership in the church is a corollary of our faith in Christ. They, they relate. We cannot no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church than we can be a person and not be in a family. May we be a part of a dysfunctional family? Yeah, we might be a part of a dysfunctional family, but you cannot remove yourselves from a family. So here it is. It is a part of the fabric of redemption. 
The church is a part of the fabric. It's a part of God's ultimate design. It wasn't me sitting underneath an acacia tree in Africa thinking I'm going to go back to America and start a church. No, it was God who had already started a church and started a work and just put it on our heart and shifted us to, to come back here and to be a part of it. Because here's what I want to believe. I want to say, I said it the first Sunday, I want to say it again today, and I want to believe it today. Grace Point is a move of God. I, I want to believe it. I want to believe that we're still, God is still using, still moving, still challenging, still calling and still prompting and still speaking and still transforming lives and still bringing hope to the hopeless and still bringing love to those who are full of hate. I still, oh, I desperately want that to be as true today as it was 16 years ago with that little core group of people. Because if we're not, let's all leave here today and let's just move on. If we're not a move of God, let's all move on. I believe we have everything it takes today as we did 16 years ago to be a move of God. Let's look at Matthew 16. When Creator God got creative with His people, And he introduced a new paradigm to them in Matthew 16. Let me give you this setting because it it will mean something to it. It's six months prior to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's six months prior to him totally changing the direction of ministry. Where his ministry is going to continue, but he's going to continue in a place where he's going to prepare a place for us. And he's going to launch us out into the world. But until then, he's not launching us. And we'll see that at the end of this passage. But when you see this, it's six months out. And it's like this mission statement, this Jerry Maguire moment, if you will. Where he writes it out. He says, listen, this is what you need to be about. This is the movement that you need to pour yourself into. This is important. But he asked some questions to get started, to prime the pump. Let's look at verse 13, chapter 16 of Matthew. It says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say you're John the Baptist. See, you notice the confusion. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. The list could go on, in other words. There's no end to the list. And then verse 15, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Now, was there any hesitation? Was there any equivocation? Was there any doubt in his mind? (laughs) When you hear that same, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. I mean, there is no doubt, no hesitation. I know who you are. And then Jesus turns around to Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Simon was his name. Barjona, Bar means son of Jonah. His dad's name was Jonah. Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father who is in heaven. So this is a divine revelation to you, Peter, yes. You have learned this from God Almighty. 
And I tell you, now notice everything that Jesus is going to do. And I tell you, you are Peter. He renames him. He was Simon. Now he's Peter. And, uh, and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged them. Charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ or the Messiah. So, in this passage, you have this amazing interaction here between Peter, between the disciples, in this location called Caesarea Philippi. And I want to just lay out for you here what I believe is the framework for the church. The framework not for this building, the rafters and, the, and all the steel that made up this building. No, no, no. The framework for us. The framework for what we were when we were five years ago meeting in a high school. Or excuse me, 10 years ago meeting in a high school. 16 years ago meeting in a living room. In a conference room. and a hotel conference room. I mean, so many places that we met. It was the hardest part about coming to Grace Point was just finding where we were going to be at uh, from week to week. But what was it that was the framework that makes up a church, that makes it so important, Mike, that you say it's the hope of the world and that you need to give yourself to being a part of and invest yourself completely in? And that is number one, is that Jesus Christ is the foundation. He's the one who makes us the ambassadors of love. He's the one who makes the church what the church is. He is the foundation. If we don't get Jesus right, we mess everything up. And they were clearly living in a culture where they didn't exactly know who Jesus was and Jesus was walking among them. Now, can you imagine if Jesus was here today, yet people yet today would still be confused. Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, which, by the way, is a place of pagan, enormous amounts of pagan worship. There's at least 16 different pagan gods that were worshipped in this one little spot of Caesarea Philippi. There's even this dark cave. You can go and see this cave today. There's this cave that empties down where there's child sacrifices, human sacrifices were made to pagan gods in that very place. And Jesus is standing there. And he's saying, hey, who do people say that I am? And you read the confusion where you're some of your Elijah, some of your Jeremiah, some of your one of the prophets, some of your John. Who are you? We don't know. They don't know. They don't know who you are out there. Well, we live in that same kind of day today. People don't know who Jesus is. If you ask a Hindu person, they'll tell you that you know the, the Hindus are largely from an Indian culture, from a, uh, South Asia. And if you ask them, they'll, they'll tell you that Jesus, when he was an adolescent, he came to India and he learned uh, yogic meditations. And that when he became an adult, he moved back to his native land of Israel. And there is where he became a first century yoga uh, or, or, or a guru teacher, where he began to teach yogic meditations. And today, he was kind of that first century yoga, uh, excuse me, yoga, uh, first century uh, guru, where he was able, a first century Gandhi kind of person, where he's now just one of many gods. And yes, if you believe in Jesus as your God, that's fine. I may have another God over here, Ganesh, or I may have another God over here that I may pray to, but you have your gods and I have my gods. And oh, yeah, I might take Jesus and put him right there with him. He's just another of the 330 million deities that are out there. 
Oh, you ask a Buddhist. Well, who is Jesus? Well, they'll say Jesus and Buddha were brothers. And that, that really that they achieved the highest form of understanding. They promoted universal love. And if we'll just get rid of the hate of this world and we'll just all learn to love each other, and love is good. Love is powerful. Love is life transforming. But the reality is that there is still hate. There is still brokenness in this world. That if we'll get rid of all the hate of this world, then eventually we'll all have universal love. And you too can achieve, achieve Buddhahood if you learn to love as Buddha loved and as Jesus loved. If you ask a Jew who Jesus is, they'll tell you from the Toledos Jesu, which is the, the history book on the Jesus uh, in, in Hebrew literature today, they'll tell you that he's a bastard child of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a seduced Mary who later had magical powers and sorcery. If you talk to a Muslim and ask a Muslim who Jesus is, they'll tell you that he is one of the prophets. He is not the ultimate prophet. He is certainly not God. God would never send his son down, or if he even had a son, would ever send his son down or even his personhood down to manhood. He would never do that. Oh, but, but Jesus is one of the prophets, just like Muhammad is one of the prophets, but he is not God. He certainly didn't rise from the dead. And they would believe that about Jesus. You can talk to a Jehovah's Witness. You ask them who Jesus is. They will tell you that he was formerly the archangel Michael. He came to earth simply as a man, and he wasn't divine. He never was divine. He died a martyr's death, and he never rose again. You ask a Mormon who Jesus was. He said he was conceived after God came to earth and had sexual relations with, uh, with a woman, and that all of a sudden God was born in this woman named Jesus. You talk to a postmodern they just basically take all of these, blend them together and make a smoothie out of them and call them Jesus. You can believe whatever you want. You can mix it however you want in whatever concoction you want. That's what the belief is, that there's no absolute truth out there. So if you want Jesus to be this, he's that to you. But if you want Jesus to be this, he can be that to you. And I'm again, I don't even have to argue any kind of rational thought in that notional Christians. Beware. There's a large number of these. Barnes estimates that 44% of those who claim to be Christians are actually just notional Christians. They like the idea of being a Christian. If you make them choose between one of the religions of the world, they're going to say they're Christian. Fill out a survey, they're going to say they're a Christian. On Easter or Sunday, they'll be at church somewhere. They might show up a few other times in the year depending on crises and moments and other engagements that don't interfere with their life. So all of this is all, you know, educational, if you will, of all the different ways that people believe about Jesus. But it isn't in there. Jesus turns the table. He says, let's quit talking about everyone else. Who do you? 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 Who do you say that I am? Because really when it comes down to it, it's you in your own 
belief. Where, where, where are you with Jesus? Where's Jesus with you? Where are you in relationship to him? What do you believe about Jesus? How has he changed your life or not changed your life? And you're maybe one of those notional people. You know, where, where do you fit on the, on, onto the spectrum? Because when he becomes what he should become, he will change everything. And that's when Peter steps up and he says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. There's not another one like you. There's, 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 you're so unique. You're so, you're, you're so you. And there's, what else is there? You are the Christ. That will change everything. That's the foundation of which everything that we're going to build our life on will be built off of. It will help us to love strangers and foreigners in different lands when we learn how to love as Jesus loved because we will have something inside of us that, 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 that this world doesn't. We'll be able to love the broken of this world and, and the desperate of this world because we have something inside of us and we've experienced something. It's like Romans 5 verse 8 says when he said that, that, uh, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we're able to love people that are broken. We're able to love them because we were loved when we were broken, when we weren't fixed, when we weren't right. First Peter 4, 8, most important of all, continue to show deep love. Again, love is greater than hate. Deep love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. The only way this fits together is because of Jesus. Jesus is that. He is the one who loves us when we are still broken. He is the one who loves the foreigners and the strangers. He is the one. That's Jesus. And when we identify with him and we know who he is and he becomes our Lord, it changes everything. We live differently. I'm reminded of a story that happened a few years ago in uh, Mumbai, India. When... Islamic extremists stormed probably the most expensive hotel in all of India, I've been told, the Taj Mahal Hotel. And when they stormed this hotel, they went in and they gunned down 167 people. Many of them were eating dinner, just living their lives. One of the persons in the dining hall that was shot at and missed but fell over and played dead, survived. He was the only survivor of the room. Was interviewed by the media afterwards and asked why they thought that they didn't kill him. And his exact words were, I guess I was covered in someone else's blood and they thought I was dead. You know... I'm able to love a stranger, a foreigner, an alien. I'm able to love a broken, a desperate person because somebody's blood has covered me. There's, there's something about what Jesus did on the cross that changes everything. And that's why I'm saying today, He is the foundation on which we are building everything.
When I talk about gospel, I'm talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When I'm talking about a teacher, a rabbi, I'm talking about the one who spoke truth and life and changed life. I want to build everything on his teaching, on his life, and the way that he lived out his life. Number two, is Jesus Christ is the, is the foreman in which we are building as a church. He's the one with the patent on the church, Okay. I know you, look, you go to one church and it looks like another church. Or you go to another church and it looks totally different from another church. I tell people in our North Point class, we're not your mother's church. We're, we're going to be a little bit different over here. But there's some things that I hope that, that are uncompromising. And is that Jesus is the foreman. We're not going to do anything contrary to him. As Eugene Peterson said, it's the part of the fabric of redemption. The church is a part of that fabric of the redemption story. And if you look at verse 18 of chapter 16, let's read that. And I tell you, Peter, because Peter was the one who said, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. You, Peter, I, I, you are a rock. And on you, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said, I'm going to start something with you, Peter. It's not going to end with you, but it's going to start with you. And you're going to be, this is going to be the rock. What you just said right there is going to be the foundation to everything. And I'm going to build something. And Satan can't stop me. Nobody's going to stop I'm going to do this. Now listen, denominations will come and go. Churches will come and go. Expressions will come and go. Styles will come and go. But the church and everything about it at its core will go on. Now, he said, I will build my church. If you go on and you read Paul's writings, he says this. Paul said this. He says, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. So who's building? Is it Jesus building or is it Paul building? And this is the way I reconcile that. Jesus was the foreman with the blueprints. He was the one with the design. But we're the builders. God is using you and I to build up His kingdom, to do His work. He gave us the Great Commission. He said, listen, this is where you're to go. This is what you're to do when you get to where you go. You're to go to the nations. You're to make disciples. And by the way, nations is ethnic groups of the world. You're to go to every ethnic group in the world and you're to make disciples in every ethnic group in the world and you're to baptize those that, are, that, that become followers of me and you're to teach them to do as I had did, as I lived. There's a, there's a, there's a tremendous scope of work there. That's why we don't vote on missions at Grace Point Church. It's not, it's not a vote because we've already been told to do it, so we're just going to go do it. We, we're going to do what we've been told to do. We don't vote on that. That's already been decided. He's the foundation. He's the foreman. We're just following out his plan. He also gave us the great commandment. What did he tell us? Then? He said, love God and love people. Love God more than anything else and love people like you love yourself. John thirteen thirty five. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you go to church, no, if you have love for one another, there ought to be an attractional part of our church, and it's not the dog and pony show that we might do on a stage. 
It is not some cool camp that our kids may go to. But I hope what draws people to Grace Point is this incredible expression of love. That the closer I got, I didn't get repelled. The closer I got, the more open I became, I was embraced. I wasn't rejected. I wasn't shunned. I was embraced. I may not go anywhere else in the world and be accepted by anywhere else, but I go to Grace Point Church and there's something about them that there's a love inside of them. There's a love that permeates from them that they just bring me in. And this whole loving one another is not the only time, 55 different times he tells us to do something about one another's. In fact, if you just look at this list that I'm going to put on the screen, you might take a photo of you might just look at it. If we're the church that's building the way God wants us to build, we're going to be loving one another. We're going to be hosting one another. We're going to be receiving one another, honoring one another, serving one another. When I say serving one another, think about that for just a moment. Why do we say serve one, worship one? Because we're told to serve one another, instructing one another forgiving one another, motivating one another, building up one another, encouraging one another, comforting one another, praying for and confessing sins to one another. That means you're going to have to be real and raw, authentic and broken, esteeming one another, edifying one another, teaching one another, showing kindness to one another, giving to one another, weeping with one another, rejoicing with one another, restoring one another, and the list goes on and on and on. I was asked by a counselor in a penetrating conversation about two years ago, Mike, who do you do one another's with? I didn't have an answer. So I want to ask you, who do you do one another's with? Who can you be broken with? Confess your sins to one another. Who, who are you encouraging and loving one another? Because what a church is, it's not a building. I keep coming back to that. It's a people doing one another's with one another. Let's talk about the third. Jesus Christ is our future. He's our foundation. Everything that we're going to do is going to be built on Him. And if we don't get Jesus right and who He is and what He said He was and what He said to do, then we can forget everything else, okay? We get that right, then we're going to build up from that. We're going to become a church that is embracing and loving and caring and edifying and encouraging and praying for and receiving and honoring and serving. That's the kind of church that we're going to grow into becoming. But then the future, Jesus Christ is the future in which we're building. He's the future. Verse 19. Jesus said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you, whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. He gives us keys. Now think about the power of keys. Chris, catch these keys. Not, okay, it's a coca catch. So, I just gave Chris access to every area of my life, okay? Cars, home, 
office, safe, everything. When I gave him access, I also gave him authority. But I also gave him accountability because I know who has my keys. Give me my keys back. (laughs) Jesus gives us the keys to his kingdom. Don't lay him down and lose him. Don't lay him down and forget him. Realize you have something that this world desperately needs. This is why I say we're the hope of the world is because we have something that this world is desperately craving. They want to know God. They want to connect with God. They don't know God. They don't know how to connect with God. They want love. They don't know where, how to find love. They want, they want, they want, but they don't know where to find it. And we have inside of us through a relationship with Jesus Christ what they're longing for. And here's something even more powerful and beautiful is the gates of hell will not stop us. And I I used to think for a long time, okay, well, what that means is that means we're going to put up gates and we're going to keep the bad demons out. And then we're going to come into a church and we're going to all be safe in here. And then I got inside the church and I saw a bunch of backbiting and a bunch of hypocrisy. So we're not safe in here either. The reality is, is that the gates that he speaks of are not defensive gates that we're keeping the devil out. They're actually Satan trying to keep us from advancing the cause of Christ. The gates of hell will not stop us from having the keys to the kingdom, to getting the gospel to our unbelieving friends and neighbors and family members, to getting true love, love being greater than hate, to getting that to the places that where there's nothing but hatred and nothing but vile and nothing but hopelessness. We have it. We just need to take it. We need to give it. We need to share it. We need to live it. We need to get it out there so that other people will see see and hear and experience what we have in Christ. But here's the problem. Philip Yancey said it. Great writer. I think a modern day prophet is Philip Yancey. Get anything he has and read it. Many, far too many, abandon the quest for Jesus entirely. Repelled by the church. They never make it to Jesus. Listen, I don't want... Northwest Arkansas to be repelled by me or by our church. I want us to be a part of something that started 16 years ago that is still a movement today. That is still moving and advancing and pushing back darkness and pushing back the gates of hell. And I can remember whenever I came back from Africa and didn't know about how to start and where to go and start a church and what do you do? All I have is this and a handful of people. And I was hungry for any type of church planning help and I could get. And I came across a 60-year-old man starting a church in Allen, Texas, Stonebriar Community Church, Chuck Swindoll. I'd been listening to Chuck Swindoll for years. And so I got all the messages that he shared on those days. And on October the 14th in 1998, when they got together for the very first time, he made this statement, about 100 people in a room. He made this statement. He says, all of us are here tonight because all of us here are interested 
in the beginning of a ministry, one that will, has never existed before, but by the grace of God will outlive all of us. And I said, yes, I want all of us to be here today not tonight. All of us to be here today because all of us here today are interested in a part of being a part of a ministry that has never existed before like this. But by the grace of God will outlive Mike McDaniel, will outlive you and the next generation, your children and your children's children, they will come to this place and they'll say, you know what? It was alive back then. It was a movement back then and it's still a movement today. And what are they a movement about? They're a movement about breathing life into life, about giving love into death or into hate and about giving hope into hopelessness or loss. I close with the story of Marilyn Deneen and a story I've told before. Clearly, I've preached the same message 16 times. But it's an event that happened in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania on April 26th. And um, she was a student uh, at the high school, at junior high, excuse me, at Parker Middle School, to be exact. And she went to Friday night dance, and on Friday night dance, there was a, a boy named Andrew who came into the dance. His nickname in the school, listen to this, was Satan. So Andrew comes to school on that night when there's a school dance, and he pulls out a gun and he begins to shoot. And it was the science teacher, John Gillette, who took the brunt of the bullets when he jumps and grabs Andrew, grabs the gun, and he receives the bullet himself. And ultimately, John Gillette will pass away at the hands of a 14-year-old boy. Marilyn Deneen got up Sunday morning two days after that and found her way to a church. She didn't go to church before, but she found her way to a church. She walks in the door and she's greeted by some first impression people much like we have. And she said, because she didn't know where to go or what to do. She says, I don't usually come. But today I needed something. I needed to be with people who believed in something. My friends, if we're not a movement, let's all move on. If we don't believe in something, find it. If you don't know Jesus as your foundation, get to know him. Would you bow your heads with me? I really believe that there's people in this room today and they don't even know why you're here. You're kind of like Marilyn Deneen. You don't normally go to church. But today, you just happened into a place and you just happened to be with the people that believe in something. And that something is that Jesus Christ can change everything. Not some things, but he can change everything. 
If you don't know him today, you can just right where you're at right now, just in your own heart and mind, you can say this to Jesus. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I want you to change my life. And I believe what you did on the cross, and I believe what you did in conquering the grave, and I believe what you did the way you live, I believe that that's the foundation I need to build my life on. You tell him that. Tell him that in your own words. I want to pray for you. If you're here today and you think, Mike, I need to pray that prayer or I just prayed that prayer with you. Mike, I need help because I need to have something of meaning and substance in my life. Would you pray for me? You can just raise your hand right now and put it down. Father God, you know the hearts of the people in this room right now and what is the greatest, deepest need of our hearts. Would you meet us there? And would you do your work? changes our lives forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing?